Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer and my guest tonight is Stephen Wynn. This is a show, in case you haven't watched any previous ones, in which we discuss spiritual awakenings, for lack of a better term, not in a metaphysical or theoretical sense, but in an actual sense with people who have actually had them. I keep engaging in conversations with friends and with my wife over the terminology because people find it, first of all, they find it rather uncomfortable to use the term enlightenment, and so do I, because that term implies some sort of much more exalted state than I think most of my guests would uh, admit to having attained, some sort of final, perf perfect, you know, highest state if there is such a thing. Some people even object to the term awakenings, and they, they feel that maybe the term a shift of some kind would be more appropriate. They feel perhaps that the term awakening implies some sort of elitism that, you know, this person is awake and that person isn't awake and, and so on. But if you're going to use the word shift, then what are you shifting to? You know, you got to, what, an awakened state. You got you to use some kind of a noun there after, <laughs> after that verb. Awakenings works for me. And the understanding on which we're doing this show and which has been brought out by each of my guests so far is that there seem to be many degrees or stages of awakening and the criteria that I've been using to invite guests on the show, criterion, is that the awakening that they have undergone seems to put them in a, a permanently different state of consciousness than they had lived in before that awakening. In other words, most people define themselves, if you ask them, as being a body and a personality in that body, which has a certain, certain characteristics, certain jobs, certain associations with family and friends, and, and uh, you know, a certain lifespan and so on. But the, the theme that has come out in the interviews we've done so far is that there is something deeper than that, which is less confined to individual boundaries and less confined in, in the sense of time. In other words, there's something deeper which is unbounded, which is everlasting, and which is, in, a deep, in the deepest sense, what we are. When you begin to experience that, as my guests have, have been discussing, then you don't cease to experience yourself as an individual and live your life as an individual, but you also find that there's this other dimension, which has very profound, and, and experiencing or living that dimension has very profound implications for the quality of your life. So, with that long-winded introduction, I would like to reintroduce my guest, Stephen Wynn, who is an old friend of mine and an old friend of Fairfield, has been living here for decades. Yeah. And uh, maybe we could start, Stephen, by just having you tell us a little bit about your, yourself, your life, what you do, things like that. Well, I'm a... Uh Married man with two kids. Mm -hmm. I've got, uh, in fact, we just celebrated our 27th anniversary. Mm -hmm. I've got a, uh, a mailing business, very successful business, and I'm a minister. I've been a minister mm -hmm. for about 18 years of an mm -hmm. esoteric Christian church called the Fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Your mailing business, as I understand it, is, a, is it's called Seminar Crowds. Seminar and, Crowds, And yeah. it's a thing where you 
send out large quantities of postcards and all to people in order to attract them to come to seminars, as the name implies. Right. And you, you do that for various people who are giving these seminars who want crowds, right? Yeah, and we, we, we don't actually do the seminars, we just do the mailings. You just do the mailings, you promote the seminars. Yeah. So we mail out two, two to three million pieces a month, typically. Wow, post office must love you. They, they do, and, and, and we're challenged for it because it's a lot for a small post office. Yeah. One thing I've always admired about you, Stephen, is that you know, you just, you have this sort of, you've always, to my perception, you've always had this kind of even-tempered, cheerful countenance, despite pretty, you know, roller coaster like ups and downs in your business life. I mean, at one point you were co-executive of a company here that employed 500 people, yeah. and that ran into some trouble through no fault of yours, I'm sure, and, and pretty much folded. And next thing I knew, you were selling pizzas, and you were doing that with the same cheeriness and enthusiasm with which you were running the big business. And now you're on to... That's because it was good pizza. Yeah, it was very good pizza. <laughs> and, and now you're on to, you know, again, a, a fairly sizable business. And, mm -hmm. and you, you seem to have, you might tell me I'm wrong, but you seem to have maintained a fairly even keel through all these ups and downs. Yeah. Uh, you know, it got to sort of segue into my, that experience that, that's why you invited me here. It, mm -hmm. it got much more even about 10 years ago, mm -hmm. this is specifically December 18th. There you go. 2000, yeah. okay, and right about 4.30 in the afternoon, <laughs> okay. So I'll just, I'll first I'll give a little bit of the background of, yeah. of what happened. So. And, and I'm glad you're saying this because I always ask my guests, you know, if you could put it on, on a calendar at a time of, of day, could you do that? And s some of them say yes, although they may have forgotten the date, and others say, no, it just sort of crept up on me. No, so let's my, hear my, your story. Mine was very specific, and uh -huh. the phrase that Marisha used once called a gradual click mm -hmm. was just like that. Hmm. Kind of a slid in and boom. Hmm. And there it was, but let me give a background. Yeah, yeah, please. Okay, so I'm a big fan of, a, of the, the great epic, the Ramayana. Mm -hmm. And there's a story in the Ramayana where the demons have invaded heaven and done the unthinkable. They've captured Indra and brought him down and captive. And he was the lord of heaven. He, he was the, the king of heaven, and it's just so totally, you know, creation was in shambles because of this. Mm -hmm. So the gods that had escaped go to uh, Lord Brahma and say, you know, Dharma has been falling apart, we need your help, we can't solve this problem, what can you do for us? Mm -hmm. So Brahma says, don't worry, I'll solve the problem. And he, poof, appears before Meghnat, who was the, uh, the son of the ten-headed demon king, Ravana. Mm -hmm. The son, Meghnat, is actually the one who later called Indrajit, the conqueror of Indra, mm -hmm. is the one who has conquered Indra and has him captive. And what ensues there is this charming negotiation. Mm -hmm. Because the demons worship the gods also, mm. and they honor Lord Shiva so, or, and Brahma. Lord Brahma appears, and, and uh, Indrajit you know, bows down to him and says, what can I do for you? And, they, and basically they negotiate what kind of a boon, what kind of a gift they're going to give to Indrajit if he lets Indra go free. Mm -hmm. And so they negotiate it. You know, if he does his puja every day, he can never be defeated in battle. Once they've concluded the, these very friendly negotiations, Indrajit says, no, let me go free. Indra. And Lord Brahma says, don't worry, I've already freed him. Hmm. And he says, Indra just says, how could you have done that? Lord Brahma says, I simply put the thought into his mind that he was free and he becomes free. Huh. Okay? Uh -huh. Now, I'm, I'm taking this class. This is a sort of an advanced abundance course called What Do You Want to Do When You Grow Up? It's a telephone course. Uh -huh. And the instructor, a guy named Larry Crane, is telling us on the phone, he says, if you ever feel like you're not free, that's his term sort of mm -hmm. from Lyman, because to avoid the baggage that you were mentioning. If you ever feel like you're not free, just ask yourself, could I let go of the thought that I'm not free? Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. 
So anyway, I'm literally driving up in Iowa City. This is an easy day to remember because it's my anniversary. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that was our 17th anniversary, whatever it was. And the sun was almost going down. That's why I can put such a specific time to it. I'm driving along and I'm sort of moaning about how I'm not enlightened. Okay? Right. Oh, this, you know, two, 25 years of meditating, I'm not enlightened yet. What is this? And I catch myself and go, wait, could I just let go of the thought that I'm not free, that I'm not enlightened? Mm. And suddenly it's like this cone of silence. Huh. Remember Get Smart in the 60s? Yeah. You know, they used to have this cone of silence come down whenever they wanted to avoid you know, the bugs listening to the conversation. Uh -huh. It's really a, a funny spoof on it, but it was uh -huh. just like this cone of silence hmm. came over me and suddenly just and shockingly different experience. And you're driving the car. I'm driving the car. Yeah. Okay. I've become oblivious to driving the car <laughs> and I have no idea how long this experience takes. Huh. Okay. Because I'm on Interstate 80 and I'm just driving. Boom. This great silence comes in and the silence has never left me ever since. Hmm. But I'll describe this. a bunch of parts of this experience that are very interesting. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is I'm in this deep, deep silence. No thoughts whatsoever. No, nothing's going on. Way above me, way far away, like this voice of God. It's really my own voice, but out come three questions and three answers. Mm -hmm. And just kind of like, wow, it sounds like Charlton Heston, but it's my own voice. <laughs> but it's so far away, and it's kind of like I was so unattached, so unconnected. Uh -huh. The first one was, again, it's not me trying to think of these things. They just, they just the thoughts are just happening. The first question was, does this mean that all my karma is gone. Because I'd had a Jyotishi, a Vedic astrologer, tell me about a year earlier, oh, you're moving into a period where you're gonna lose all your karma. Mm -hmm. And the answer that comes back, sort of floating back this way, so to speak, mm -hmm. is, yes, now it belongs to Stephen. Ah, Very interesting, yeah. you know, suddenly, and I've realized I am not Stephen anymore. Uh -huh. I am this silence, and uh -huh. there is no question about it. So the second question, I go, hmm. Second question comes by, again, this floating Charlton Heston-type voice. It's my voice. Mm -hmm. It says, does this mean, because I'm a Christian minister, so salvation's in You had already been one. Yes, yes. I've been one, been one for 18 years now. Mm -hmm. So the whole issue of salvation, what does it mean? Right. You know, we're a very esoteric Christian church, so we try and find what's it really mean. Mm -hmm. The question floats along is, does this mean that I've been saved? And the answer floats back. There's nothing to be saved. <laughs> you know, and then who would save? What's to say? Who would save an old coat? <laughs> so now, not only am I separate, but it's nothing that, about that. You know, basically now, now I would say there's no salvation of the ego. There's only the awakening of the being. Mm -hmm. So the third question comes again, just comes floating: Is does this mean that I'm as enlightened as Maharishi and Amici? And the answer comes back. It says yes but you don't have their power. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm still intelligent enough to think, so I go, huh, could I let go of the thought that I don't have their power? Mm -hmm. And I go to an experience that did not continue, but it's, it's extraordinary anyway. I go massively deeper. Mm. I can't even imagine going massively deeper, but I did as like this syrupy, sweet presence. It's just, ah. and suddenly I'm, I'm in there all of creation starts pouring out of me. And the first thing that comes up is all the gods, all the goddesses, Archangel Michael, Lakshmi, all these various gods are just emanating from me. Mm. And Maharishi, Amishi, Vivekananda, you know, I see all these masters there also. Mm -hmm. And way, way further away is creation. Mm. So it's sort of like, you know, they are creating 
and it's you know this is a you know almost Rishi Dave Don Chandis, okay, and I realize from this level all these masters that have all this power that I don't consciously have from this level of being, I am that power, and they are just expressions of me. What it's done for me is anchored in me that there's only one of us here, and that's true for everybody. There's just one of us here. You know we're all creating, and we may not be conscious of it, but that was my that was my creation, and that didn't stay, okay? But the silence stayed, and my experience there was that for two or three weeks, it was such this crystal clear, I use the phrase loud silence, okay? It was just so loud. And after about two or three weeks, it becomes normal. The doubt comes in. The doubt? The doubt. 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 Oh, is this, you know, this witnessing? I mean, very clear at night, really crystal clear. During sleep. Yeah, during sleep. Yeah. Just emphatically clear. Mm-hmm. And I go, oh, is this, uh, you know, and I'm sort of wondering, is this, you know, because you, know, you hear about people having an, an experience of, uh, of witnessing 24-7, mm-hmm. and then it goes. I go, oh, what is this? But my nature seems to be that I get very clear experiences. What started happening is every time I'd have a doubt, I'd almost revert back to this perfectly clear experience of this witnessing. So one, one example of this would be that uh, you know, my wife and I were in the habit of going to bed at the same time, mm-hmm. and it's just easier to fall asleep when we both go to bed. We both, once we both get in bed, it's just, right. just, just a, a cultured pattern. So at one night, I'm lying in bed, waiting for my wife to finish, you know, taking her makeup off, this mm-hmm. sort of a thing. You know, sort of thinking, ugh, staying wide awake, thinking, hmm, you know, every so often thought flows to my mind, when's she gonna come to bed? Wide, but pretty much wide, wide awake. And eventually she comes in there, gets in bed, and I go, I say to her out loud, oh, thank goodness you're here, now I can fall asleep. And she says to me, what are you talking about? You've been snoring for the past hour. <laughs> you know, yeah. And I go, oh. You know, one of the things that I'll say here, I'll sort of pull in some of the research from Fred Travis on campus, the professor that does all the brainwave studies. Let me just interject. When when he refers to campus, he's referring to Marshy University of Management, which is a university here in Fairfield, Iowa, where everybody, all the students and faculty and everybody practices transcendental meditation regularly. And Dr. Fred Travis has been doing brainwave research for decades, trying to correlate uh, brain functioning as it can be measured with higher states of consciousness. So go ahead. I go to one of his lectures, mm-hmm. very, very interesting, and he really does have it well mapped out. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the physiological brainwave correlates of witnessing? He's telling the story about this woman who had... Born- Let ahead. me just interject one more thing, witnessing. I just wanted to define terms because all kinds of people watch these okay. things. And why don't you describe witnessing? So wit- define it. So witnessing is the experience of pure consciousness. It's while waking, sleeping, and dreaming is going on. Right. It's almost as though, in fact it is as though, we have two, a dual functioning of the nervous system, and one nervous system is experiencing pure consciousness all the time, and the other is experiencing waking, sleeping, and dreaming the whole time. Right. And so they, they go together, and uh, I'll talk in a minute about the effect of that. And I think maybe the reason the word witnessing is chosen for this experience is that there is a sense that, you know, in the, in the midst of all this activity, there's pure silence, and I am that silence. There can also be a sense that that silence imbues or, or infuses or permeates the, the surroundings so that there's almost this flavor of nothing's happening. You know, even though things are obviously happening, at the same time, nothing's happening. Yes. Uh, because it's all silence. 
It can sometimes take on the characteristic of feeling oneself to be far removed or detached from creation, as you experienced in the car when you first had that. Other times, it's more integrated, I would say, and, and you don't feel any sort of gulf or dichotomy or anything. But still, if you, if you tend to look, there are these paradoxical elements that coexist quite nicely together, of silence and dynamism or activity. So, and, proceed. And, and it's distinctly different from simply keeping your mouth shut and intellectually watching what's going around. Yeah, it's yeah. not an exercise it's, in... It's, it's not an exercise of the mind. Right. Okay, it, it's pure consciousness, that silent state living there all the time. Right. So anyway, back to his description of it. He was, he was uh, measured this gal. Mm -hmm. she, she'd gone back to Belgium. And so he's, he mailed her the results saying, you know, this looks like uh, you're witnessing. You know, you've got the brainwave pattern of this. And she calls him up and she says, I don't think I'm witnessing. You know, he starts talking to her, asking these questions, looking at her life. You know, how much quietness there is in her life, how much supportive nature she has. Do things just happen for her? And she goes, yeah, 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 yeah. And she basically describes this wonderful, perfect life. Mm -hmm. And he says, well, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. And, and here, that was my experience, is that yeah. after two or three mm -hmm. weeks, it was normal. Mm -hmm. Okay? And I could easily see, in fact, I ended up, sometimes I, uh, I go to meditate in the Golden Dome on, on campus here, where mm -hmm. about 1,000 people are meditating, 2,000 people are meditating. Mm -hmm. I'd sit there and I'd look, shortly after this experience this was happening, I'd look and I'd look out at the, all these people and I'd say, they are swimming in a sea of consciousness, just like I am. Mm -hmm. And the only difference between us, perhaps, is that I notice it. Right. And they don't notice it. Mm -hmm. But no difference other than that. Yeah. That's actually one of the reasons I wanted to do this show, is that it's been my experience that a town where a couple of thousand people have been meditating for decades, there are a lot of people who are really living what you're talking about. But just as in your case, perhaps, when you just before you had that thought in the car as you were driving, where would I be without this thought, there is some, just some slight angle of, of attention or, or doubt or holding on to some concept of what it's supposed to be as opposed to what I'm actually already living. You know, kind of the, you know, looking through the glasses that are, that are sitting on top of your head kind of thing. Yes. I'm finding that this show is, uh, hopefully will be very helpful in enabling people to see that common characters that we see around town every day, Buddhas at the gas pump, are yes. um, experiencing something that many more of us are actually experiencing, you know? So let, let me give you an analogy yeah, yeah. I, I love to use. Mm -hmm. We've all seen these illustrations. You, you look at them one way and they're two, face the two silhouettes looking at each other. Right. You look at another way, it's a lampstand. Right. Okay, or mm -hmm. whatever. A vase or whatever. A vase, right. right. And this is what it's like. Mm -hmm. Good this is, you look at it one way, it's this way. You look at it one way, it's this way. You look at life one way and there's a silence. You look at life another way, there's all this activity. Mm -hmm. And it's just a shift of perception. Yeah. And like I say, Everyone's got it. Mm -hmm. And it's, on one sense, it's amazing, and in another sense, it is absolutely nothing. Mm. So, the first thing I noticed was I still had feelings. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> well, <Duh. laughs> well, you know, I mean, my, my opinion is most people want enlightenment, or whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. to escape from their feelings. Right. Okay? And I, I would notice that, oh, well, these feelings still come up. They didn't hook me like they used to. Mm -hmm. Okay, but they're still there, sort of going on and almost marveling that, wow, how, how could that still be there? But they don't last very long. I, I was expecting, oh, total bliss, total peace and nothing but that. But instead, it's the backdrop right. is bliss. And out here, there's still activity going on up and down and up and down and up and down. And it doesn't matter. 
Right. You know, you're awesome. expecting that if you hit your thumb with a hammer, you're going to say, well, that feels new and nice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you're probably going to say, <laughs> Yeah. This is why I look at the people here who have been meditating for 30, 40 years, mm -hmm. and I go, the only difference is I notice something that they don't notice. Yeah. And other than that... And many of them do notice it. I mean, yeah, many of them can, do. can you tell just walking around town who notices or who, who doesn't, or would you have to talk to them and sort of get into a conversation? I mean, by looking at them, I certainly couldn't. No. I mean, <laughs> they, yeah. they, you know, and the people I've spoken to mm -hmm. was like this woman from Belgium. Right. You know, she, doesn't, she didn't think she was, but yeah. when the description there, and in particular, you know, the, the witnessing of sleep, I, like I was very fortunate, those first mm -hmm. two or three weeks is so crystal clear. Right. But after a while, you don't care if you're witnessing or right. not. It's just... It's like you just assume sleep. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. And it just doesn't matter if, you, if, if you're... And again, it's just noticing that the silence is there. Right. But what I'll say is, it's always crystal clear, if I ever think about it, that the silence was there. Right. It's like, I'm um, crystal clear, I breathe, mm -hmm. but I may not be aware of my, yeah. my breathing. Right. Yeah. And so. it doesn't add anything to your breathing ability to be aware of it. No. Uh, nor would it add anything to the silence to constantly keep attending to it to see if it's there. Yeah, check on, oh, are you there? Oh, good dog. <laughs> Still there. Good, good dog. Stay <laughs> Sit, heel. Yeah. Go away, kid. I'm yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't it seem to you that the mind has a kind of a habit? Minds do tend to just think in habitual ways. And, you know, I've, I've engaged in weekly satsangs or spiritual discussion groups with people, and you can almost see it click in where they think, wait a minute now, and the mind just goes into doubt mode and just starts cranking up all these reasons and trying to kind of grasp it on a mental level. But it's not something that the mind contains. Mm -hmm. it's, it's something that maybe contains the mind and everything else. And they're trying to kind of put the cart before the horse or something. Yeah, the, uh, the mind's very tricky. The mind, mm -hmm. the whole mind ego. Hmm. Very, very slippery, and very much, in my opinion, their job is to maintain themselves as separate from awareness, separate from beingness. You know, the job of the mind and the ego. The job of the mind. You know, right. it's, it's sort of like we've said, we, we want the mind and ego to run our lives, mm -hmm. so we put them in charge of it, and they don't want to give it up. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and once you get really clear that the, the mind and ego are just doing an okay job, and mm -hmm. really we've, we've done them a disservice to give them that responsibility. Yeah. Okay? Because how much more profound is living life on the level of the heart, on the level of the intellect? Mm. Where it just On the level of being. On the level of being. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I meant me on the middle level of awareness. Yeah. Right. So, and <laughs> yeah, not on the level of the intellect. No. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'll talk about... If it's, if it's useful. Talk about anything. Yeah. Okay, so the traditional Vedic path mm -hmm. is, you know, you've got seven states of consciousness, waking, squeaking, dreaming, and this experience of pure, pure silence alone by itself, mm -hmm. then this silence, this experience of witnessing, the silence with activity. And the traditional sixth path is what I call as a, as a preacher, the Nathaniel state. You know, Why do you call it that? Jesus promises Nathaniel, oh. one of the 12 disciples, that he'll you know, basically show him the glories of heaven mm -hmm. and all the heavens. Mm -hmm. yeah, Nathaniel was so impressed that Jesus could see who he was and what his nature was from when they're standing 100 yards away in a fig tree. And Jesus uh -huh. says, you're impressed with that? Mm. <laughs> you know, I'll show you this. That's interesting. I was in a, on a boat ride with Marshy one time, about 50 yards away. Um, there are two guys actually standing together on the shore. And Marshy said, the guy on the left has much more spiritual silence. You can sort of see that. Nice. From the nice. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, this, this sixth stage is mm -hmm. sometimes called glorified cons cosmic consciousness or, or God consciousness, mm -hmm. where you're more or less perceiving the celestial finest value of life along with the gross value of life. 
Okay? Right. I had this experience, and, and I won't call it a state of consciousness because it only lasted about four days, mm -hmm. but it, it'll give people a vision of what's maybe what's going on there. And I'll tell the whole story because it's a charming story. Yeah. Here I am, this Christian minister, uh -huh. and you know, way out here in terms of esoteric metaphysical understanding of the Bible, and get a lot of grief from traditional Christians. Do you interact with them much? And, and... Uh, I used to more than I do now, because right. I, I used to, I love hanging out with people that just love Jesus, right? because that's very dear to my heart. Hmm. We'll talk more about that, but go into okay. this story. I get this flyer in the mail talking mm -hmm. about a course on, a one-week course on Christianity and business. Yeah, I thought, oh, that's sort of nice, it's a, mm -hmm. and it's a good, it's evangelical church in Kansas City, mm -hmm. but, a, you know, they're very focused, very dedicated, and they all do a lot of prayer and fasting. I thought, ah, oh, and this sort of like quiet part of me goes, you're going to that, hmm. okay? I catch myself and go, hmm. So I'm sort of like hearing it from the universe, from right. God, that I'm going to that, and then I start complaining about it, sort of, sort of arguing with God. Yeah. Okay, so he goes, God, you know. Let this cup pass from me. <laughs> yeah, I said, God, if I go down there, they're just gonna judge me. Mm -hmm. I said, why do I have to drive four or five hours to Kansas City to get judged when I can go across the street <laughs> and, and Jubilee will judge me, right. okay? You know, the, the local uh, evangelicals will judge me. I keep complaining and complaining and I still keep getting this message, I'm going. And finally I say, God, I just want to go somewhere where I can be loved. Then the voice comes through very, very clearly and says, you're not going down there to be loved. You're going down there to learn to love them. And you know, what can you say? Okay, I'm going. Right. All right. So I go down there, and the first thing is, this whole church is like 5,000 people. Wow. Okay, big, big church. Mm -hmm. Now we're off sort of on the side. This is started on a Monday morning. Right. And uh, we're off sort of on the side about 30 or 40 Christian business people. But the whole church, all the staff, like six or 700 people, all fast three days a month. Mm -hmm. And it happened to be those first three days, so I'm fasting along with them. Mm -hmm. Three days in a row. Three days in a row. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm doing... The Moses fast, you know, no food, no water, very, very, wow. very strong fast. And I'd been reading The Way of the Pilgrim mm -hmm. with this wonderful book about this uh, pilgrim over in Russia. Russia, right, I Russia. read that years okay. ago, yeah. You know, and, he really and he's, he's doing the, uh, the, the, the Hasiklimic, I forget the pronunciation of it, mm -hmm. pronunciation of it, it's Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, that prayer, right. just you know, repeating, repeating over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And he ends the book with this glorious description of this celestial experience he has, wherever he looks, he's seeing the presence of God. Hmm. So anyway, I'm doing that down there all these three days, and I just absolutely go into God consciousness. Hmm. Everywhere I look, there is this shimmering, beautiful glow. Hmm. And I look at the wall, and it's a wall, and it's this shimmering presence of God. And I look over the floor, and it's that. I look at this person, and my heart is unbelievably expanded. Hmm. And that goes on for three days, and then the fourth day goes on, I'm thinking, oh, I hope I don't lose this because the fast is over, and I start drinking juice, going just fine until Thursday night, the fourth night, where they're starting a big conference for the whole church, and we're invited to the evening ceremonies, mm -hmm. the opening ceremonies. So the main theologian, they have this school of theology there where they train ministers, he starts giving this talk, and this is shortly after Katrina, and he says, you know those nurses that stayed behind Katrina when the power was out in the preemie ward and saved the lives of all those premature babies by their great sacrifice. He says, you know, they're all going to hell if they haven't accepted Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I, you know, this outrage rises up in me. Yeah. Okay, and I start thinking of all the scriptures where it's not that true, that's not true, that's not true, that's not true. Right. And, then, and then he says, and I have a lot of good Mormon friends. Yeah. And he says, you know, that good Mormon neighbor of yours who's a scoutmaster and he works for Habitat for Humanity, 
he's going to hell. <laughs> and I'm going, ooh. And I'm just furious. Uh -huh. And I'm just seething. And I'm just like shouting him internally. And, and after about 10 or 15 minutes, I realize this incredible, glorious, celestial perception is God. Uh -huh. God. And I go, oh, no, Lord. You know, and I was like, yeah. I feel like this treasured baby was gone. You know, like, uh -huh. And I go, oh, what am I going to do? And I... You know, that night I go home to my hotel room and I say, God, you have to show me what this is about mm -hmm. because uh, I sure want to know. So I wake up the next morning, I'm normally because of the witnessing, and I was witnessing all during this time. Of the witnessing, I wake up very sweetly, right. very silently. This morning I wake up with this shout in my head hmm. that says, what about him? What about The him? minister? Yes. Yeah. And I realize that just as I lost the connection to this divine when I was judging him, mm -hmm. As long as he's living judgment, he can't possibly be experiencing it either. Right. And so suddenly my heart just went wide, wide open, huh. filled full of compassion, not just for him, but for all Christians who don't quite understand it yet. Yeah. And so that's how I learned to, look, to, love, to love them, huh. just, just like God told me that's I was nice. be doing. That whole attitude of everybody's going to hell unless they believe what we believe, Strikes me as being a sort of a way of puffing yourself up, trying to make yourself, you know, like we've got the secret handshake in our club and nobody else can come in, you know? It's like we're, we're better than everybody. It's kind of like an ego boost kind of a thing. It strikes me as being, I don't know. I mean, and, and it's not only Christians, of course. I mean, it's, it's, there's, it's every metaphysical Yeah, there's group. a faction like that, even a majority sometimes in every religion. Yeah, and, and, and every And all kinds band. of other groups. Yes, spiritual, spiritual. Our guru yeah. is the best guru, you yeah. know, and our, our practice here is the best. Our diet is the best diet or whatever. And, and my experience is as long as we're holding judgments like that, we're separating ourselves from God. Yeah, well, that's a great story. Judge not, lest you be judged. Yes, that's why Jesus says yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because... It bears repeating that key to your story is that, well, Alma uses, a, uh, uses an analogy with regard to anger. She said it's like a, a blade that doesn't have a handle and it's a blade on both sides and you stab somebody, you also cut yourself, you know, and, and I think the same could be said of judgment. You yes. know, you, you're judging them and you're probably closing yourself down more than you're doing anything to them. Yeah. You know, the other thing I'd add in the seven states, to sort of go back to this other analogy of the seven states of consciousness, is Jesus talks about the seven states. Seventh, the seventh. In his prayer, we praise at the very end that we can be one with the Father just as he is one with the Father. Mm -hmm. And not just one with the Father, with, with everyone. Mm -hmm. So my experience is, if you know how to look for it, and that's why I'm so happy you're doing this show. Mm -hmm. If you know how to look for it, all these states of consciousness, all this refined consciousness is 100% inside of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And it's just time for it to... You know, again, it's just a shift of perception. Yeah. Suddenly you see it, and you, you, once you start witnessing, once you start having these glimpses of the celestial, mm -hmm. you read every passage differently. Mm. So that's my desire to, to see that come forth more in Christianity. Yeah, I'm sure it will. You know, through you, through people like you, through just a general upsurge that's taking place in the world, I think there's a yeah. kind of a global awakening, and we're all doing our little, our little parts. What do you make of the teaching in many different Eastern religions, and primarily Hinduism, uh, and perhaps also to some extent in Western, that the ego is, actually has to be crushed or destroyed. I'll quote Maharishi. They use that terminology, you right. know? Yeah. I'll, I'll quote Maharishi here. Mm -hmm. So Maharishi Mahesh Yogi says there's two ways to deal with the ego. Mm -hmm. One is to expand it until mm -hmm. it becomes universal, and the other is to destroy it. it until it becomes so small that it just disappears altogether. Yeah. So one way or the other, 
the ego is this mechanism that we have that keeps us separate from the world, mm -hmm. separate from creation. Mm -hmm. So one way or the other, you know, to experience unboundedness, the ego has to be dealt with. Marcy chose expansion. Mm -hmm. In all uh, honesty, Christianity and Buddhism, well, they're the very similar religions, they go for the destruction of the ego. Mm. So when Jesus, for example, overcomes the three temptations, you know, then he says, get thee behind me, Satan. I hear that as the enemy, Satan, is really our own ego. Mm. And because, you know, Jesus is overcoming these desires of the ego to be glorious, to be powerful, to be eternal. Right. Okay? And he's saying, get behind me, basically, be gone, mm. destroy yourself, and that allows Jesus to go into his universal role. I'd say both are true, and depending on the yeah. nature of the teacher and the nature of the student, you're going to be in a different path. It's my sense, and hopefully we're not talking uh, speculatively or metaphysically here, because I think we can relate this to experience, um, which is what I want to keep doing on this show, mm -hmm. you know, so it doesn't just become in kind of a philosophical chit-chat. But it's my sense that ego, as I understand it, is a necessary tool. I mean, you can't really live life without one. If you had no sense of personal identity, you wouldn't be able to walk through the door, you know? There'd be you know, you no know, distinguishing your, this body from the door. And in fact, I was reading a book last night in which various teachers were saying that if your ego is weak and undeveloped and perhaps confused, you've got to build it up first yes. before you have anything worth surrendering, yes. worth offering as, yes. a, as a surrender. But let's put this concept of enlightenment back in, on the table here. Mm -hmm. And for one, I'll, I'll tell you, and this comes out of the teachings of Mayor Baba mm -hmm. and also the Sufi tradition, is that there's different types of enlightenment, okay? And one of them really is, this, and then the Sufis, they call it the Majub, is the person becomes so enlightened that the ego does disappear, mm -hmm. and they literally become a functionless corpse. Alive. They just lie there. They're just lying there like that. Yeah. And they're gone. They have that in Hinduism. The musts, the crazy. The guys will just lie on the ground with their mouth open, and if anybody drops food in, they swallow it. Right. You know? And so that kind of enlightenment is absolutely possible. But back on the other side of this is, you look at any of the, the famous masters. Right. Like the Maharishi, Amachi, uh, Ramana Maharishi. Yogananda. Yogananda, all these. You know, if you say, you know, Amachi, she turns her head and she looks at you. Yeah. Okay. They have an ego. They right. have some some level of identification. They call it, you know, the Lesha Vidya, the last remainings of the ignorance, mm -hmm. and it allows them to function. Yeah. So. And they also have cultural background, and and they speak certain a certain language, and they have they like this kind of food as opposed to that right. kind of food, and right. maybe this person as opposed to that person, even though there's this sense of universal love. But you see, you know, such people still having very distinct, colorful. Right. personalities with all kinds of preferences and let me tell you about another a western master not mm -hmm. so well known named Lester Levinson mm -hmm. and uh, the reason I brought him up and the reason I say I was so surprised that I still had emotions mm -hmm. when I started witnessing you know he went through this process of, of releasing he was sent home to die he had a heart heart failure back in 52 mm -hmm. sent home to die by his doctors because they said we can't help you no right. no stents in those days that sort of thing right and you know he examined his life and he said aha I've been healthiest in my life when I've been loving. I've been the sickest in my life when I've been wanting. Mm. So he just started systematically going through his life, his past, and letting go of all his negative feelings. Mm -hmm. And literally let them go so much that he had no feelings for about 15 years. Mm. All these amazing miracles. You know, if, yeah. he, if he wanted to drive his, his old car, he'd go out and take a pencil and hit the battery and it would start. <laughs> okay, just all sorts of things like right. that. The reason I brought this out about the feelings 
is that after about 10, 12 years, he was having trouble because he was, you know, people wanted him to teach, okay, because he had was such extraordinary peace around him, mm-hmm. and he was having trouble relating to them. Right. So he said, I need to get back into these feelings. Right. So he started watching daytime television for three years. <laughs> Soap operas and stuff. Yes. <laughs> yes. And after about three years, he noticed a tear coming down his eye. Ah. He goes, ah, now I can go out and really teach effectively. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the degree of giving all that time, if you would have said Lester to him, he would have turned his head and said yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he still had a little bit there. But the degree of how much of the ego remains, let's call it negotiable. Did you ever read the book uh, Collision with the Infinite by Suzanne Siegel? I did. Interesting book. This, I did. This woman had been a, a long-time meditator, meditation teacher, transcendental meditation. And then at some point she'd kind of drifted away and, and she'd stopped meditating. She got married and she, to a, a French doctor and she got pregnant and she was living in Paris. And, and one day she came from swimming at the pool and she was just getting on the bus and all of a sudden, boom. She just lost all sense of personal identity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she, and she just had this sort of unbounded impersonal awareness and she couldn't find a sense of personal identity and she panicked. And she kind of started looking back, where is it? Where am I? What's going on? And the more she looked, the more she panicked. And this basically went on for 10 years of this looking back, trying to find a sense of personal identity. Meanwhile, she was raising a daughter, getting a PhD, you know, doing all this normal stuff, but without a sense of personal identity. She couldn't locate it. Mm-hmm. And finally, and she went through all the, to all these psychologists. She thought she was crazy. With us, she was disassociated. Yeah. And finally, she went to a spiritual teacher named Jean Klein, a French teacher, and um, he just said, stop looking back. You know, and somehow that snapped her out of it, and she kind of relaxed and shifted and, and realized that, ah, oh, this is a spiritual state that I've attained. Mm-hmm. And kind of once she relaxed into it and stopped fighting it, mm-hmm. then it really started to blossom. And mm-hmm. Cool story. It's a great book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's bring this back to you a little bit. Well, first of all, I think you started meditation before you became a minister, right? Yeah, I started meditating in 1973, and uh-huh. uh, 1992, what happened was that uh, I'd been on a tour following Amici around. 72? 92. 92, 92. 92, I'd been on a tour following Amici around the country. Uh-huh. I came back to the Unity Church that mm-hmm. uh, we'd started two years earlier, two, three years earlier, mm-hmm. and the Unity minister stands up and she says, the Holy Spirit says, I'm supposed to leave, and she points to me and says, and you're the next minister. <laughs> <laughs> and, <Okay>. uh, <laughs> you knew her pretty well. I knew, she knew, she yeah, knew, you she knew well. me, and I, I knew her, and I go, oh, and I had offered to teach a prosperity class. Right. Okay, because I've had a lot of prosperity, some ups and downs. Actually, the, the joke with that is, is I was broke at the time, mm-hmm. and I wanted to teach a prosperity class just to put my attention on prosperity. <laughs> it, it always brings prosperity. That's right. my experience. Yeah. She said, just teach what you're going to teach in the prosperity class as your Sunday morning servants. And so that just sort of kept going and kept going and kept going. And, you know, it, uh, for about 12 years, it was a unity church. Mm-hmm. But because I wasn't ordained in unity, uh, eventually that caused a little schism yeah. with the, the main organization. I totally understand that. And so mm-hmm. we recruited this independent and, like I say, very esoteric Christian mm-hmm. church. Mm-hmm. Were you kind of an avid Christian before you learned Transcendental Meditation? How old were you when you learned TM? I was 20 when I learned TM. Okay. What had happened to me is that when I was 11, I was an army brat, meaning I was living on, my dad was an army officer. Traveling around. Traveling to different army bases. And I'd go to Sunday school. Mm-hmm. In a one Sunday school class, this is down in San Antonio, Texas, the, uh, the PFC, the private leading the class, who's a very, very strong Christian, 
said, well, I'm shipping out next week. It was my last class and had us all sit in a circle in our chairs. Said, now put your heads down and I want, when you're ready, I want you to raise your hand if you're going to accept Christ as your savior. So we were sitting there, it seemed like forever we were sitting there and I finally kind of said, boy, if I don't raise my hand, we'll be here forever. <laughs> and so I raised my hand and then I peeked at everybody else. Mm-hmm. No one else had raised their hand. Mm-hmm. It was so funny because I, I realized, I said, even though I sort of did this under strange circumstances, something had happened. You know, it was almost like a, a recognition of a connection between me and Jesus. Huh. And, you know, after that point, it was like something was there, but I go to high school, the Jesus Freak movement starts, the street Christian movement starts, I can't stand them. Right. So I'm going, I don't want to be a Christian like this. This is not me. And so I let it go. But... What happens is, I learned to meditate, you know, in October, mm-hmm. and by... October of 73. October of 73, yeah. okay, and by the end of December of 73, I've read the Bible all the way through, cover to cover, mm-hmm. which I hadn't done ever, Right. okay? So somehow the meditation opened up something inside of Christianity. Yeah. And then, here, here is the joke of all this, mm-hmm. is that uh, I'm taking this speed reading class mm-hmm. offered by the campus. The instructor. What campus? Uh, UC Santa Barbara. Sorry. I see. Okay. This instructor says, "Oh, she says, you know, you can become a minister for two dollars. You, you send off your two dollars to become a universal life church minister." And I, I basically said, "Well, I want to do that." Mm-hmm. And uh, so I sent my two dollars in as a joke, and I'm thinking, "Oh, there's gonna be some great tax scheme or something like this." Yeah. All of which is false. There's no no big tax scheme. Mm-hmm. But it's one of the things you just be careful what you what you ask for because suddenly I get this certificate and people start saying to me. Would you perform a wedding ceremony? And you know, that starts up in uh, 70 or 82, I guess. Pretty soon, I'm a real minister. (laughs) One thing led to the next. One thing leads to the next. Yeah. Yeah. I read the Bible too, cover to cover, but actually, I listened to it while walking the cat when I was living on campus where you're not supposed to have cats. And so I would take it out and walk it every evening for, and for half an hour, keep an eye on it and listen to the Bible. It's beautiful. And then I did the whole thing with the Book of Mormon too because some Mormons gave me that on, on tape nice. uh, to listen nice. to, which tended to fit Mark Twain's description as being chloroform in print, but there were some interesting bits. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was reading... Uh, the Book of Mormon, I think there's a chapter called Nehemiah or something like mm. that. And uh, I was complaining to the guy who gave it to me and said, this is so boring. <laughs> and he goes, oh, Nehemiah, you know what they say? You know that uh, there's a story about some guy in World War II or something like that who, uh, who has a Book of Mormon in his, in his pocket. He's a soldier and catches, catches, the, bullet. catches the bullet and it, it hits the second Nehemiah and stops and the Satan, the guy says, nothing gets through Nehemiah. <laughs> That's pretty good. Well, you know, I had been camping in Utah, and, and I had breakfast with some Mormons, and they offered me a Book of Mormon. I said, I'll never read it. I said, but I listen to books on tape. And they said, okay, we'll send you the thing on tape. So they yeah. sent it to me here in Fairfield, and, yeah. I, and I felt honor-bound to listen to it since sure. they had sent it to me. And then sure. I, I donated it to the local library when I was done. Well, you know, we're laughing, but the, the truth is, when you look at the Mormon church, mm-hmm. if you can handle authority, because it's a very authoritative religion, mm-hmm. but when I go to Salt Lake City, and I walk around Salt Lake City, and I'm, I'm not like Marcia, you can really see who's spiritually awakened right. and who's not, but I see so many well-integrated 
Mm. Whole, I see wholeness in so many people. Yeah, it's a very, in my opinion, it's it's a really good religion. Yeah, I, I taught TM in Utah for quite a while, and I really enjoyed it out there. And I really yeah. liked the people. It was a good feeling. And it, it is growing, by the way. It's just mm-hmm. a point of interest because yeah. I've, I've done a lot of historical reading about Christianity. Right. The early Christian church grew about four percent a year. Mm-hmm. If you look at it today, the Mormon Church, since you know eighteen twenty six or whenever it started, mm. has been growing about four percent a year. Huh. So it's it's a rapidly growing. Doesn't sound yeah. like a lot, but it's a big yeah. church, and it's yeah. and it's it compound interest. Compound interest. <laughs> it, it, it's it's a moving church. Huh. You know, it'd be interesting to hear religions in general. Many of them, as we said earlier, have a, have a faction, sometimes a majority, who are very judgmental and very kind of exclusionary, mm-hmm. and so on. Everybody else is going to hell. We're you know we're the only. I mean, there are probably little places in in the country where only the members of a certain church are going to heaven and everybody else is going to hell. Yeah. So it would be interesting to hear from your perspective, basing it as much as possible on your experience, as opposed to just your beliefs, how you can manage to be so tolerant, not only of all kinds of Christian sects, mm-hmm. but of Hinduism, Buddhism, mm-hmm. you know, every other religion in the world. Because, you know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man goeth unto the Father but by me. So maybe you could comment on that, but try to do it in terms of your experience. One thing to understand, for me at least, Mm -hmm. is that when I read the Bible, I read it differently than everybody else does because of my experiences. Right. I read it in this... Not necessarily different than everybody else, but... but Than than the traditional classic. And so, you know, when when it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, or I am the open door that no man can shut, Mm -hmm. to me, when he says, I am, Mm -hmm. okay, and he's very, Jesus is very clear. He says, you know, God is love and God is spirit. And what he's, to me is what he's saying is, love is the open door that right. you can shut. And he said, I am my father at one. So if I they're one, one, then he's love. And he he's is spirit. love. And the other thing is, Jesus is very, very, very clear. He's asked, you know, what are the two main commandments? And he says, love God and love your neighbor. It's very close. As yourself. As yourself. Love mm-hmm. your neighbor yourself. And, and that's very close to, the, to loving God. Mm-hmm. So... You do those two things, you are honoring the teachings, the essential teachings of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so, and they're both love. Anybody who preaches love, who teaches love, I welcome and I honor. Mm-hmm. But let me give you a different take on the narrowness mm. of all these different religions. And like, I'm very quick to point out, I see the same bigotry in every spiritual group. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, New Age spiritual groups, right. Eastern spiritual groups. Yes. Right. And the way I see it is that it's the duty of, the spiritual leader of any group, any church, to make it easy for the followers to stay on the path. Mm. And so there's a certain amount of catering to the ego to do that. The teachers that are the most effective are the ones that convince their students that they've got the best path right. and they stay on it for 20 years rather than going here to here to here to here. Yeah, I mean, the teacher's not going to say, well, this is like a third-rate path. You'd really right. be much better off there, but come on, stay with me anyway. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, because the, the danger is not that they'll go to another path, the danger is they'll do nothing. And the ego takes over, continues to live as the ego. Or they'll be dilettantes. They'll sort of try to dig 100 wells a foot deep instead of one well 100 feet deep. Where they really get the water, right. where you get the spiritual nourishment. So I don't see that as a bad thing. I mean, it's easy right. to look at it and say, oh, how judgmental, how narrow-minded, and all this sort of thing. But I'm seeing that as, this is how you keep people moving forward, digging that one well very deeply. But then you said, you know, you, you had that experience with that minister in Kansas City where 
he was being very judgmental and it yes. shut him down and, yes. you, and it shut you down to be judgmental that, of him. Yes. So, you know, aren't leaders who instill that sort of attitude in their followers shutting them all down? So what I've noticed is, and this is just an observation, when you look at an organization, a spiritual or a religious organization, mm-hmm. that the people at the bottom of the hierarchy there are not judgmental about the others. The person at the very top is also very open. Mm. And it's the ones sort of in the, you know, let's call it the uh, 85 to 90% to 95% uh, level of authority in an organization who have the most to lose, whose egos are invested in it. Mm. They're the ones that really build and hold on to how much better we are than everybody else. Hmm. So top and bottom don't care. That little <laughs> band does care. Yeah. And, and they, they're perpetrating it. And, uh, mm. you know, these, these wannabes down here that want that. And every organization, every organization that, that I've, you know, just as a student of history of spiritual organizations, you see this pattern that's perfectly exemplified by Jesus and Paul. Here is Jesus, this incredible spiritual master. Absolutely first rate, okay? Whether he's one and only or not, I'm not going to say, all right? But absolutely... If he is, there's a lot of planets in the universe that are in deep trouble. (laughs) Right. So this absolutely, you know, completely spiritual love being. And then along comes Paul, who creates an organization after him. Were they contemporaries or did Paul come a couple hundred years later? Paul never met Jesus. Paul was persecuting Jews Mm -hmm. and, you know, has that experience on the road to Damascus. Oh, that's that's him, yeah. That's Paul, okay. okay. Paul creates this incredible organization, this church that, you know, we have today. Right. St. Francis of Assisi, Mm -hmm. again, this incredible spiritual being, and his sidekick, I forget the fellow's name, Mm. is a politician inside the church. Okay, and... You know, some of the things he does, you just like gasp. Hmm. But what he does is he creates, you know, the Franciscans, who are this incredible, powerful force throughout history of feeding the poor, helping the sick, helping the lame, all that sort of thing. So it's almost as though you start out with a spiritual impetus, spiritual power, and then someone comes along and says, now let's institutionalize it. Institutionalize it and and, and put it into the world where where it's going to last so Hmm. this just doesn't disappear. And at first I used to get mad at Paul, and I used to get mad at this guy, this St. Francis' sidekick. But now, right. now I look and say, no, look what they've done. Yeah. They, they've, they've brought something out that, and, and the critical part of the unfolding of knowledge. Interesting. Yeah, and that's that same 85 to 95% sector that I was just talking about. Yeah. You know, someone in there is going to rise up in every spiritual organization that's going to last hmm. and create this ongoing nature of it. That's my opinion. Let me recap a little bit. So you, you started meditating in, in 73, Transcendental Meditation. Mm-hmm. You went along doing that, and then 17 years ago from now, which must have been about 92, 92. you became a minister, yes. yes. and then you went along doing that, and then about 10 years ago, 99 or so. 2000, December of 2000. December of 2000, December 14th at 4.30 p.m. Eight, eight, December 18th. 18th at 4.30 p.m. Who's, who's keeping track? <laughs> yeah, right. What is it? <laughs> you, you had this profound spiritual awakening. Yes. It's kind of hard to say, even for you perhaps, what is causal and what is coincidental. You know, it's like it could just be that the engine that's been driving you all these years to pursue these spiritual things ultimately culminated in this awakening 10 years ago and perhaps the spiritual things you've been doing were conducive to that awakening but on that vein do you think i haven't asked when i when i'm moaning the fact that i'm not in unity of brahman consciousness could i just let go of this thought uh-huh. okay it worked for me then it worked for me then <laughs> it, 
Yeah. You know, I, I have glimpses of it. Yeah. But but very clearly, it's a state of consciousness that I'm intellectually clear on, but isn't my reality. Right. But I do find it interesting, and I again wonder whether it's causal or coincidental that you would have this thought, can I let go of this thought that I'm not free? Mm-hmm. And then suddenly this freedom would dawn. Mm-hmm. I, you know, because I mean, probably half the people who are listening to this are going to try that. I hope you try it. Yeah. <laughs> Something may or may not happen. And they're going to say, well, geez, why did it work for him and it's not working for me? Yes. It could be that you were about to pop and that thought yes. just sort of came in as coincidentally as a result mm-hmm. of what you were mm-hmm. about to experience. I, I couldn't argue a bit with what you're saying. Yeah. Like I say, that's why I say it. It doesn't work when I ask about a unity consciousness because I like with the thought I'm not there. Yeah. I'm sure there's a timing, mm-hmm. you know, a time and place for everything. The, it's an unfolding. Yeah. I, I remember Marshy's analogy. He says, oh, people don't know why they get enlightened. You know, there's a, a man, imagine a man who, who has just one last stress left mm-hmm. and uh, he's reaching up in the supermarket to pull down a can of soup mm-hmm. and the stress leaves and boom, he's awakened and he starts the can of soup. Uh, the can of soup movement. movement. <laughs> <laughs> All I can say is that spiritual practices along the way, no matter what, are providing peace of mind, peace of heart, and they're well worth doing just because, you know, like the Susan Seagal story. Right. Okay. You know, very, very hard, very, very uncomfortable for her for a mm-hmm. long time. And my sense is you do the spiritual work because when it happens, you're, you're then ready for it rather than having a, a rough landing, so to speak. Yeah, not only that, but if, as I read that book, Collision with the Infinite by Suzanne Siegel, if she had put two and two together, if she had sort of recognized in all the lectures and, and things she had studied uh, mm-hmm. around meditation, that those were actually referring to what she was now experiencing. If she'd been able to connect that, she would have just been able to relax into it right away. But the, you know, the memory was faint, vague, and the experience was so different than what she had anticipated, perhaps, when she had been studying it some years back, that she didn't connect. You know? And therefore, and in fact, Marshi says, I just looked this up the other day in the Gita, his commentary in the Gita, that um, this experience of freedom or awakening can actually be a cause of confusion and fear if it's not associated or supplemented by a proper understanding. Now, the other thing Marshi says that's uh, really interesting is... Hold that thought. We're yeah. going to take a little break. Welcome back to Buddha at the Gas Pump. We took a little break to change discs. Um, my name is Rick Archer. And my guest tonight, or today, whenever you're watching this, is Stephen Wynn. We've been having a very lively discussion, which, uh, however you're watching this, you'll probably be able to scroll back and see what we've been talking about. Uh, but just before the break, we were talking about... We were talking about the, the Enlightenment experience. Right. And, you know, how Susan Seagal couldn't quite uh, integrate what yeah. happened. The, the importance of knowledge right. to, to make sure that experience is smooth and comfortable. And also, what's the cart and what's the horse? I mean, you know, does the imminent emergence of awakening cause you to have some such thought as maybe I could just drop the thought that I'm not free? Or did that, was that thought actually instrumental in causing the awakening? So anyway, one of the, the story I was starting to tell was that Maharishi describes this process of enlightenment. He does it a number of different times and different things, but one of, the, one of the stories he says, I heard this in my Science of Creative Intelligence class back in 1976, mm-hmm. what happens is the, the disciple becomes enlightened you know, goes to the master and says, "What well, you know, I'm experiencing this. And the master says, yes, that's it. Right. That's enlightenment. Yeah. And the disciple goes, no, it's got to be more than this. Right. It's, it's not enough. And the master goes, no, no, that's it, that's it, that's it. So it's almost as though 
it's, you know, because we're all expecting this light bulb flash marching band experience. Right. And it's not quite that. I yeah. mean, I was lucky to have a very crystal clear experience of it, but, you know, like the Belgian woman. Yeah. Just, and like, and Susan Segal had, right. had a... Hers was sudden, but uncomfortable. Sudden. Right. And Margie actually sees a phrase that it, it can sneak up like a thief in the night. Yes. Um, and I think, and, and there's this group in town called Waking Down, which is a spiritual path. Uh, my guests in the last two weeks were Waking Down uh, practitioners. They have this phrase that some people are oozers. They kind of ooze into enlightenment mm -hmm. or into awakening. And I, I think if you ooze gradually enough, you don't even know that it's happened. And that's like the Belgian woman. Yeah. All going back to the question of what causes it. Right. You know, does, does spiritual practice have anything to do with it? Okay. Or is it just destiny that's going to happen? Mm. And I don't have a perfect answer. I, I, I love Maharishi's perspective on it, which is to say knowledge is different in different states of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So probably from the universal perspective, you know, it happens all on time, no matter what. Mm. And from our own individual perspective, it happens just when we are free enough to let go of the ego and experience some unboundedness. Yeah. There was some Zen master or something, somebody quoted this in one of my previous interviews, where he said something like, enlightenment can happen quite by accident, but spiritual practices make you accident prone. <laughs> That's very nice. <laughs> you know, now, the, the likelihood of, you know, it can happen to anybody. And it does happen to people, just out of the blue. People who haven't done any sort of spiritual practices, they, they could be just walking across the street, and all of a sudden, kaboom. But, you know, the likelihood of it happening, I think, increases the more you prepare yourself and culture the nervous system to experience such a thing. So there's a couple, a couple of things I'd say about that. Mm -hmm. one, one is that Mir Baba used to describe people in an insane asylum. Mm -hmm. And because he, Mir Baba spent a decade going throughout India finding what he called the spiritually intoxicated people called, huh. called musts. Mm -hmm. And he would take them and work with them. He says it was his job in creation to mm -hmm. give them a push to the next side. Hmm. That they were people who had gotten stuck right. in sort of the, the celestial glory of life at mm -hmm. a certain level and were mesmerized there and wouldn't, be, wouldn't do anything to move any further. Mm. So, but, and he said many people, not many, but he says in almost every insane asylum in India, you go in there and he said there'd be one or two people who were really spiritually awake huh. and had had an experience like this and it's so overwhelming, mm. sort of like Susan Segal, only they, they literally think they're crazy. Yeah, so Marshi said the same thing about insane asylums. Yeah. Not that everybody in there is, no, but, but some. But a small, small percentage. Yeah. But the other story I wanted to say is, because I always relate back to letting go of the ego, mm -hmm. whether through expansion or through collapse, is that many people, you know, we're talking about when it happens, when it doesn't happen, but many people simply aren't yet willing to awaken. Mm. And I say that from my own experience. Mm -hmm. So the very first kind of meditation I learned, this was in 1972, uh -huh. about a year before I learned TM, I took a class called the Nature of the Soul Meditation, the Tibetan Buddhist type meditation. The way this worked is you took a seed thought, in this case the first thought was the nature of the soul is immortal. And the instruction was to take that thought one time and then sit quietly for 15 minutes and if thoughts came by, not to fight them, but just, you know, imagine a, a log floating down a, a small stream that uh, you could sort of jump on the log and push aside to get to the other side. Mm -hmm. And when a thought comes along, you just sort of gently let, let it float away. And so I did this because it was really cool in Santa Barbara to be a meditator. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought, I'd, thought the girls would love me. <laughs> and, uh, but what happened was... This first meditation was so profound mm. 
that I came out of it going, I clearly have a soul. Ah. Okay? And terrified at the same time. Why? Because the next week I could see there's going to be some sutra, you know, some statement, opening statement, that's going to be like the nature of God is, is self, you know, is, is something that's going to affirm the nature of God. And I thought, if I know that God exists, like I know I have a soul, ah. I'm going to have to drop everything in my life. Interesting. So at that point you were an agnostic? Or? I was an agnostic and I was terrified that if I knew there was a God in the same degree of strength, mm. you know, all the, the, the material desires of my life, mm -hmm. you know, the girlfriends and the... You are about 19 I was 19 point. or so, yeah. all, all the adventure, because I'd been a river boatman. I was a whitewater river boatman. I had mm. all these rivers I wanted to go rafting down, that yeah. sort of thing. And I'm thinking, I don't want to give that up. Uh -huh. Okay, I had a list of things. Yeah. And as my ego just said, not ready, mm -hmm. not happening. I never went back to that class again. Huh. You know, and I, I only started TM because... I was on the, the fencing team in Santa Barbara, mm -hmm. and the uh, I saw the studies that said you do this kind of meditation, faster reflexes, you get faster reaction time. Right. And I was actually part of a follow-up study. You know, yeah. MIU was in Santa Barbara at the time, right. which I, I didn't even know about. Mm. But so they did a study, and it was really true. After meditating, I was much faster. I mm. became a very good fencer. Huh. MIU, which is the university, Marshy, it was the, the original name, Marshy International University of. It's now called Marshy University of Management, and which moved from Santa Barbara here to Fairfield, Iowa, in about 1973 or so, or 70, so. 74, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, just putting it in context when you throw out an acronym like that. One thing that I find fascinating is that, and this is to some extent true in your case, uh, as you've been describing tonight, but I have some other friends like this too, who seem to, whenever they sort of think about something, like some spiritual insight, they have the experience. And I find that a little frustrating because for me, my experience is not so responsive to what I think. I get real high doing shows like this, talking about this kind of thing. I have this weekly discussion group that I go to every Wednesday night. I'll be going there tonight after this. And a lot of awakened people in the group. And you know, one in particular, he hardly even meditates, but he, he has these profound experiences. And just week after week, there's a very significant shift in his experience in, in a, you know evolutionary way. And it seems always that it's, he just kind of sees his way into it or feels his way into it. Maybe it's just a matter of one, one's own makeup, you know, one's own personality, how, how one functions, and it's just different for different people. Well, I'll tell you a little bit of background on that. Uh -huh. There's just another perspective on it because it, it's, it's tr true. You know, I've been very blessed in the sense of having experiences, although it's always a battle dealing with pride on it. Pride? Pride. Mm -hmm. And think I'm cool on it. Yeah, how, and, when, and, and how stupid is spiritual pride? Right. Okay, oh, I'm so spiritual. <laughs> Give me, I'm all, it's, it's a huh. continual battle. Especially if you start getting up in front of audiences and right. people start looking at you like, whoa, this like, guy's like, got... Like, yeah. like you're somebody. Believe me, it's, that's why it's been, what, close to, well, it's been virtually 10 years, mm -hmm. nine years, since I've really been, I've never told the story in any, any public format whatsoever. No, oh, so this is your first? This is the first time. Oh, cool. Yeah, you know, some of the, some of the stories, I, I told the story about the uh, learning how to love the Christians. Right, I told right. that story, but... Uh, but the actual awakening. That, no, yeah. no, I've never described that because the sort of, a, I don't want to be yeah. out there like, like that. Well, you know, there's, I keep the thought you're going to pursue, but I just want to say that um, 
there are a number of people that I haven't yet convinced to come on this show mm -hmm. because they don't want to be idolized or yeah. and they don't want to come out of the closet, so to speak, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. be regarded as something special or unusual. You know, there are a lot of people who are like, like that in this town. I mean, I could think of just half a dozen off the top of my head that mm -hmm. are, I'm, I'm hoping that after they see a number of interviews like this, and that, that's part of my motivation in doing this show is to turn it into to turn it into something much more common, at least in this town, mm -hmm. to eliminate the stigma of, <laughs> and it almost is a stigma, <laughs> of, of being awakened, you know, where you're either accused of being on some ego trip or being self-deluded or, or whatever, you know, that, that's many people's knee-jerk reaction. So I can understand why you'd be reticent to. You know, the reality is Marcy started all this because he said the world needed enlightened people. Yeah. So. And so what's so horrible about the fact that we're getting some. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, I, I was hearing today, someone was telling me, and I, I, I've never heard this, so it was just on the level of rumor, mm -hmm. but that in the Vedas somewhere it says, a hundred people in unity consciousness can transform the world. Mm. And I, I believe it. Yeah. I completely believe it. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, oh, oh, I'm fading on that story. Yeah, let's get it back. Oh, I know why. Okay, good. I was saying, as, you know, why it is, because I used to ask, why am I having these, these experiences? Right. Like and fighting pride, you're also saying. Yeah. Yeah. So, when I was in college, mm -hmm. I just got so clear that my mission in life was to know everything about everything. Mm. Okay, I called it a Renaissance man. Mm. You know, and I'll read all this. I just wanted to know everything about everything. So when I was on phase one of teacher training for the TM program, and I never did become a teacher. Mm -hmm. Okay, as another interesting story there, but. Uh, Good, they can't kick you out of the dome for doing all the stuff you do. <laughs> <laughs> but what happened is on, on, on teacher training, Marshy is describing the nervous system of a Rishi. Mm -hmm. And the exact same phrase that I had used all during college. So the nature of a Rishi is someone who wants to know everything about everything. Hmm. And I go, ah. Wow. Okay. So is that why your nickname is Rishi? No. I'm going to Oh, I'm going to give you that. Okay, uh, well, she's on to something. Well, and I go, oh, that, that was the other thing. That was just out of the blue she gave you that name? Well, sort of. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess this is the day I'm coming out of the closet on everything. Yeah, right. So uh, <laughs> what happened was I was on tour with Amishi, and, mm -hmm. you know, people were getting names. So I figured, oh, I had to get a name. I'll ask her for a name tonight. Mm -hmm. And that, that day, when I'm meditating in my hotel room, I have this experience where I go to an absolute world. Mm -hmm. You know, you've seen pictures of Krishna and Ram in blue, you know, right. dark purple like this. Mm -hmm. So I go to this world where tables are blue, the walls are blue, mm. the house, you know, all, all... And it seemed like a real world or just some it, imaginary vision? No, or? you know, very, very much a real world. I didn't meet any beings yet. Oh, okay, just tables but, and stuff. But very clearly, and I go, ooh, this is what Marcy means when he talks about, or rumors that he talks about, an absolute world. Mm. You know, that, and I go, ooh, that's interesting, and I'm sort of stunned by it, and nothing to do with it. I mean, it's right. never come back again, and this, like this. But that night, Amanchi gives me the name Rishi. Mm. So I go, oh. I haven't heard her having given anybody else that name. I mean, she gave one right. little infant that name. Oh, yeah? And my wife happened to be standing right there when, she gave, when she gave that name to the person. So she pulled the person aside and said, you know, he's very likely to have some very clear experiences. Huh. You know, because... Interesting. Yeah. Cool. But uh, so, but what does it mean? You know, and Amishi, Amishi, by the way, very carefully, because she does not want spiritual pride running around. She right. said, "I'm giving you this name in the sense of someone who does a lot of sadhana, uh -huh. a lot of spiritual work, yeah. which I do." Right. Okay. And by the way, Rishi means seer, right? Seer. Yeah. In, in Sanskrit, it, it means seer. So right. it just, and that's why I think I see these things very fairly clearly. Yeah. You know, and and you know, believe me, some of these people that I've talked to, 
they have experiences that far outshine mine. You know, Some and, of which people you've talked to. You know, like, like the ones you've talked to. Like Around this, town yeah, people, this, yeah. This fellow that has this new experience every week. Right. That didn't, you know, you're getting uh, 20, 35 years of experience yeah. here, you know. And this guy's like 25 years old. He's, he's 20, and, yeah. yeah, and every week it's something new, and yeah. I, I'm not that. Started meditating when he was four or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and you know what? I get happier and happier when I hear stories like that. Mm-hmm. You know, at first I used to like feel a little jealousy. Right. But now it's kind of like, oh, thank goodness. Yeah. Thank goodness people are going to be here that can carry this forward because... I don't feel jealous. I can, I, I can relate to the jealousy thing, but I kind of see life as a continuum. I could live to be 100, I could die tomorrow. It's going to carry on. Whatever's yeah. best, whatever is I need in terms of experience in order to progress along the path that I'm on, it's going to happen. Yeah, you know, the, uh, we all have patterns in our life that sort of guide and direct us and... And, and shape the direction we go. One mm-hmm. of mine is this desire to save the world, huh. you know, which is a complete fraud. Yeah. Okay, the world is perfect just the way it is. What was that voice that said to you? It said, uh, who is there to save? Or yeah, who's there to save? <laughs> and, and, and by the way, the joke on this is, you know, I realize because in, in this church, I keep trying to find a way to turn Christianity into a bona fide spiritual path, okay? Isn't it already? No. Oh. It's once it sort of became the power religion. It got too encrusted with yeah, it, institutionalized. It institutionalized and, yeah. and it became a moral, you know, how to yeah. inculcate moral behavior in people. Right. Now, there's always a core of it that's spiritual, mm-hmm. but that's not the main part of it. But for the, for the participants in, who are in that aspect of it, you know, the moralistic aspect of it, isn't it appropriate for them at the stage that they're at? Yes. And do I think that... It could be brought up to where, it, for them, it's not just a moral transformation, but a spiritual yeah. consciousness. I mean, if they want to be connected to, to Jesus Christ, which is, which is Christianity, right. you need to transform your consciousness first. Yeah. Okay? New, new, new wine, new wineskin. Yeah. Okay? Oh, I lost my train of thought here. Forming Christianity. Oh, oh yeah. So the yeah. joke of this is... Here they are trying to save me, mm-hmm. and it finally dawned on me that here I am trying to save them. <laughs> so there's no difference here, right? You know, and, huh. no no difference. And you know, when I when I get there, I can relax. I go ah, I can let it all go, but it still comes up. There's that saying in the ecology movement: think globally, act locally. Yes. You know, I think that's what we're all doing. I mean, how significant is this little TV show in the big picture of the world? Right. You know, but it's, we're, you know, we're holding up our stick, we're each doing our part, and your little church on the square, you know, you're doing your thing, and collectively, this stuff has ripple effects. And, and I'll tell you, Rick, do not be surprised if this show has huge impact. Yeah. You know, I can say, because we put our sermons on YouTube mm-hmm. and do no promotion whatsoever. Right. They get around. Well, you know, I went and looked once, how many people are watching? Like 900 watched this one, 700 watched this yeah. one. I was expecting five or six you know, people cool. who can't get to church because their knees hurt or something like that. Well, listen, Oprah Winfrey's starting her own uh, TV channel, and she's going to need programming. <laughs> <laughs> and let me ask this question, though. Uh-huh. How much freedom is there in having to perform internationally or nationally? What do you mean? Every week. You've got, to, you've got to put in a show every week. Oh, it's fun. Well, I understand that, because, yeah. and, and I do it for, on, on the sermon, but you know, when, I, when I look at quality of life and freedom, okay, how much freedom there is, I mm-hmm. go, wow, if I can get to a spot where I don't feel compelled to do anything, mm-hmm. and it's just a free expression of love, yeah. that's, that's when I'm the happiest. Mm-hmm. 
rather than, oh, I have to do this because I have to save Christianity. I see, without any missionary motive. Without any missionary motive. Right. So I need, I need, to, need to let go of yeah. the missionary motive, and every time it comes up, I need to catch it and let it go. Yeah. Well, I admit to having a bit of a missionary motive with this show, and I've always been a bit of a born-again proselytizer for whatever I was into. And because I have a feeling that, you know, as we were saying earlier, that there are a lot of people who would benefit around here and around the broader scope from seeing week after week that so-called ordinary people are having extraordinary experiences. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I'm primarily doing it just because I find it extremely uplifting and enlivening and fun yes. for me. Yes. You know, it's like I sit yes. at my computer all week earning a living, and this is the highlight of my week, getting out here and doing this. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a great service. Well, thank you very much. We can do this, you know, again. I mean, I have a whole list of people, but I'm, I plan to rotate some of them through because I think as you go home after this show, you'll... You'll think, oh, we could have talked about this, we could have talked about that. So take notes, you know, okay. if, you, if, if thoughts come to you, and uh, we'll do it again maybe in a few months or something. And, sure, uh, sure. Who knows what we'll come out with. It's, it's an ever-evolving experience. Uh, thank you very much, Stephen. And you've been watching Buddha at the Gas Pump. There will be some titles uh, at the end of this show, which will be on the screen long enough for you to write them down with links to a number of things you can do. There is a internet chat group, a discussion group, where people, some of whom have been guests on this show and others of whom have been watching it, are talking every day about these sorts of topics. There'll be a link to that. There's a YouTube channel where we're putting, we're posting all of these shows. There will be my name and email address in case you want to send in any questions that I can ask guests. I have an email list that you can subscribe to uh, to be notified of future shows and probably two or three other things that I'm not thinking of at the moment. But in any case, those will be in the titles and uh, we hope to see you next week. Thank you very much.